0: Dreaming big propels you forward, but we have to admit that it's often a bumpy road. In the book Making Your Way, Vlaric Dean Marion de Bruyne and Vlaric professor Kathleen de Stobbeleer unravel 15 persistent myths about the path to success and finding happiness in life and work. Hi, my name is Mathieu van der Boogaert, and in the coming three Vlerik book podcast episodes, I have the pleasure to interview both authors and dive into those 15 myths. First important question these times, how are we both doing, Marion? So far, so good. Yeah. Alive and kicking. Great to hear. We're both here to talk about your new book, Making Your Way. How did the idea grow, Marion? Was it at a certain moment you woke up and you thought, I'm going to write a new book?
1: Not at all, not at all. It actually grew... Well, um, actually, through contact with our publisher, who I think first sort of inspired the idea. And and, and it was ignited for me by, you know, the, the big occasions in the school when, when I speak to our students at graduation or at the opening of the academic year. And those moments make you think about what are the key messages that, that we want to give to those young people who are making their way in the world. Um, and by extension, you know, what are the messages that we could give to any young person who is making their way in, uh, in the world? And, and that I think that idea inspired the book as sort of what lessons can we can we give them that maybe I would have been happy to have had um, at, at that age. Now, that being said, I hope that um, the lessons that we give in our book can inspire not only young people, but also not so young people.
0: I remember from our previous podcast, Kathleen, that you had the idea of someday writing a book. It happened. You wrote a book. Yeah. And you're glad with it?
2: I'm very happy with it um, because it, it really, for me, combines a lot of things that I have close to my heart First of all, there's this uh, very strong uh, scientific component in there. After all, we're both scientists, so we, we really think that's important. So it brings together some of the research I have been doing in the past, but it also allows me to combine that uh, with uh, my experience as a teacher and a coach, uh, which are sometimes, uh, sometimes really separate worlds. And so, really being able to combine that, uh, it was a true pleasure uh, writing this
0: book. Yeah. And in the book, you mention success really is only 1% inspiration and 90% precipitation. Was this the case for this book?
2: Well, I must say, the book itself for me was 100% uh, inspiration, but of course, uh, you don't write a book in just a year. Uh, um, Yes, uh, the writing itself took a year, but it's kind of bringing together all of your experiences from many years, uh, all the research you've been doing in in all those years that came before it. Uh, So, and there, of course, there was a lot of uh, sweat involved in that. uh, So, but the writing process itself, I think it went very smoothly just because that backpack was already full with with research experiences. So for me, it was a very inspiring process.
0: Okay, let's dive into myth number one. You can be anything you want to be. If I hear that myth, Marion, um, Are all dreams fake? Should we lower our enthusiasm in order not to get disappointed in life?
1: Well, I hope not, uh, as we want to inspire dreams, because even if you don't achieve the original dream that you had, you know, we say, well, when you shoot for the moon, maybe you don't get there, but you will land among the stars. It is a fact that dreams, whether they are very specific or whether they are still vague, dreams really drive you forward, you know, they inspire and I, and, and, but our key messages, hopefully they also inspire action. And so that idea of, you know, getting there is only 1% inspiration and 90% perspiration. Uh, I, I think that is the message that we want to bring. You know, many people dream of achieving big things, um, but talk about it more than really doing things. And, Every dream is built and realized with many, 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 many daily, small steps, steps forward, also steps backwards. when When I spoke to Likke, the CEO of Too Good to Go, um, she called that um, patient impatience," which I really liked as an as an idea of being indeed, impatient in, you know, moving forward, realizing your dream, you know, being in a hurry to actually do that. But in that process, also realizing that, you know, you need to have persistence, you know, you need to be patient that, you know, those steps forward every single day, you know, you need to be able to continue that uh, for for quite a long time to realize realize big dreams. Um, It's a marathon not a sprint.
0: A question to you, Kathleen, now, how to achieve your dreams if you're eaten by daily routines? Uh, firefighting, uh, can imagine being a mom with two children, two, a indeed. husband, yeah. uh, hobbies, work and things like that. Yeah, not everyone gets a license to dream and what would you advise to people who are caught in a red race called life?
2: Yeah, I love that question, actually. Um, I think it's it's something that we all need to be careful of uh, uh, because I think many people think I still have time to to realize my dreams, uh, thinking also that you will uh, achieve the, those bigger things later on uh, in life. But of course, that's also a bit of a pitfall. Uh, and so my first advice would be uh, don't settle because ultimately you get what you, uh, you settle for. Um, but but I would also give two concrete uh, tips. Um, one maybe based on a, on a, a video I saw with uh, with Steven Spielberg, um, who actually said, you know, a dream it never shouts into your face. Uh, it's it's a whispering voice. And so my first uh, advice would be make also time for reflection. Uh, And we actually cite a study that shows that um, that's sometimes difficult for people. Uh, We would rather give ourselves an an electroshock uh, than to reflect on on how we feel, to reflect on our dreams, because it's also a little bit scary. So uh, that would be the first tip, make it quiet and silent every now and then to really listen to that, that voice and dream. Um, but the second one is, is indeed also uh, trick yourself, I would I would call it, uh, to take action. Um, and I'll maybe give a, a very small example. I used to be a huge procrastinator when it came to writing, even though I loved it. Uh, I've actually done it all my life. I've always loved it. But one way or the other, I, I always felt like I need a lot of time to write well. And so uh, that also means that it would, was something I could easily uh, um, procrastinate on because uh, I was teaching, I was indeed... Uh, I had two children, so there was always a reason not not to do it and to
0: procrastinate around it. Which is not an easy characteristic if you're writing a book, I think, No,
2: so, so I really had to trick myself in, into some new habits, and I did that long before uh, writing this book, actually. Uh, so So to give maybe one example is I... Um write every day. Every day I take 15 minutes to write something uh, and uh, it, it helps me. It's like a muscle. You train the muscle and the more you do it, uh, the better you get at it and the, the more comfortable it feels. But another thing is, I, uh, when and I applied that also while writing the book, I each time end with half of a sentence. So when in the morning I open up my computer, I see this half finished sentence. So I don't procrastinate then. Uh, I really feel like I need to finish this sentence uh, rather than say, "Well, oh, first I need a coffee and I have to yeah. do this and this and this. No, then immediately you have this call for action in front of you. And I think this uh, tricking yourself into new habits, you can apply that to many things. Uh, also with going to the gym, for example, uh, many people also procrastinate around that uh, um, put on your gym clothes before you go to bed and very often uh, in the morning when you then wake up you will take that step so trick yourself would be my second maybe it's a dirty tip uh, but I, I do think it's it's uh, it's a helpful one it it really helped me
0: all right some good advice let's dive into myth number two happiness is. Painless. And you mentioned a lot of movies in the book, quotes, but also a lot of other books of uh, different authors. And one of the books that is being mentioned is a book by Bill George and Peter Sims. It's a book, True North. And it debunks the myth of the superhero, top executive with a charmed life who effortlessly swoops in like a white knight to save the day. Stars can shine without darkness. Well, When I wrote those sentences, I thought, "Well, that's not a happy point of view. Um, Isn't life too short for being unhappy?"
1: Yeah, um, it it all matters on how you know. It all depends on how you look at it. Um, There is indeed always a silver lining, and and there often is also the silver lining in the things that happened in your life or the background that you had that, you know, maybe was not all rosy-colored rosy or maybe was not all perfect. And um, what I like about, you know, True North is that it really makes explicit that it, this actually is where often you find the kernel of where you find meaning um, and, and what is really meaningful uh, to you. For, for me, for example, is um, you know I grew up in a family that was not at all academic. I'm I'm the first one in my family um, to go to to go to university. Um, still one of one of the only ones. So this idea that I would become a professor and an academic and even a dean. I mean, I you know I had no no clue what a dean even was. Was was rather far fetched. But you know it it's through. In fact, reflecting on, you know, the fact that I, you know, was able to have that path that you also start to think about, well, it's really meaningful for me to enable other people to also explore their full potential and to leverage education like I was able to do, leverage education as a really powerful driver of, of change and enabler um, of, uh, of, of making it. And so I think, you know, in that sense, it's not a surprise that I ended up in the world of education and that those aspects of my job that I find the most meaningful is really Seeing, seeing how we can help young people to to live up to their full potential, because that is also you know meaningful to me because it's reflected in my own life story uh, as well. And so when we say stars can shine without without darkness, um, you know the meaning of that is that uh, you often find meaning in those setbacks, um, in uh, and you know those things that didn't go entirely your way, or those obstacles that you had. To overcome, and so in that sense, the you know the subtitle of the book, the wobbly road, um, you know, to success and happiness, also already indicates that it's actually in the wobbles, in the setbacks, that you often find you know the most meaning and inspiration.
0: Yeah, and I remember the quote you mentioned earlier: you, know, you can't have a rainbow without rain. Exactly, From Dolly Parton. Yeah. Um, In this chapter, in this second myth, uh, the concept of emo diversity is mentioned. Is it something that a lot of organizations don't pay enough attention to, Kathleen? Well, uh,
2: emo diversity, maybe it's also important to highlight a bit what that is about. Uh, It's really this notion of um, you can't be happy if you aren't unhappy every now and then. uh. And so um, uh, we actually know from research that people who... uh, only have few emotions uh, and that emotion could even be uh, being joyful all the time they're actually in the long run unhappier and they even uh, live less long uh, than people who have very diverse emotions. And I think it's also important that we accept all these different emotions in organizations, uh, that also in organizations, we don't expect people to be constantly shiny and happy and smiling. uh? People have emotions and we actually have more negative emotions than positive emotions. And we also know that from research So so, uh, um, allowing for emotions in the workplace is a very important one to also build connections, I'd say, Uh, because uh, if somebody is sad, you automatically want to help that person or you want to comfort that person. And that builds a much, much stronger connection than just sharing some information. So allowing for for all kinds of emotions, we also know uh, that it really facilitates connections within an organization. So for me, uh, the advice to to companies would be just embrace the fact that people do bring their emotions uh, to the workplace. And let's maybe also in doing that, abandon a bit the idea of, Um, that emotions don't have a place in the workplace. I think they have a fundamental uh, space there.
0: Myth number three, the only way is up. Marion, I remember that you met Ariana Huffington, is it last year, in 2019 or 2018? Probably two years ago. Two years ago. Yeah. I think she made quite an impression because she ended up in your book. Um, mm-hmm. Why is that? Why was she so inspirational?
1: Well, I think that the, the life of Ariana Huffington can provide inspiration in, in many different ways. Um, first of all, she, she debunks the myth of the... A tech entrepreneur as being a a, a young young guy. Uh, she started the Huffington Post when she was fifty five, um, and so you know we typically don't think of a tech entrepreneur as a middle aged woman. And she you know she proved that you know anything is possible, and um, at any uh, at any stage in in your life, and she still continues to do that. Um, But what I also find inspiration about her story is um, she started as uh, she was born in Greece, um, moved to the to the UK on a scholarship uh, to study at Cambridge. Um, there as well. Again, you know, education as as a as, as, as real key lever um, for people to develop themselves. Moved to the U.S., um, became a writer. Uh, she wrote quite a lot of biographies um, and then ventured into politics. And this is actually when she came on my radar, uh, because uh, that was a time when I was living in the U.S. and she was running for governor. She was running for governor of, uh, of California, And so it was very often in the press and in the news as, you know, one of the talking heads as well on on, on news channels. And um the time when she ran for for governor of California, she one of her opponents was Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, who also was you know an, an unusual a suspect getting into politics and he eventually won that race and, and became governor and and so you know obviously that was a very public defeat um, for for Ari- Ariana Huffington but at the same time it also was you know what she acknowledges, the start of the Huffington Post, which turned out to be an amazingly successful venture, very impactful new media business model that, you know, she then sold to to AOL. Um, And actually, it was through that failed race that she did discover how, you know, the internet um, in the early days then and social media in the early days then could be used, could be used to make connection with people, could be used uh, to spread information. And so it's it's there that she finds the original idea to start the Huffington Post. And so in that sense, her story shows, uh, is is, is one of of continuous reinvention. You know, she she has been a writer, she has been a politician, she's been an entrepreneur, um, she's done many different things. And it also illustrates how you know sometimes in, in the things that don't go your way um, it, you know they become the source of the source of success and inspiration
0: yeah and what was the reason that uh, you met her she invited you or
1: yeah actually funny funny story in, in that sense because i was asked by the financial times to write a column the whole concept of the column and the assignment that the Financial Times gave me is it should be about a person and what we can learn from that person. It can be either a historical figure or a fictional person, any, but it should be about somebody. Um, and so I actually thought, you know, I'm going to write it about Arianna Huffington and, and the column was published and... I don't know why, but I never even considered, never even thought that she indeed, you know, was a real person that maybe would even read this column. <laughs> I had never thought of that while actually writing it. You know, she seemed so far-fetched, you know, this, this public figure. Um, but the next day after the column was published, I got an email from her, you know, congratulating me and, and you know, on the text and that she was happy uh, with it um, and then... And and so later on, then the idea came about, you know, to do an interview together with, um, with a newspaper um, to do a duo interview with her. And so that led, you know, me going to, led to me going to New York and visiting the new headquarters of her new startup, um, Thrive Global uh, in, uh, in New York. So uh, uh, that uh, a column assignment uh, really got, uh, got some legs.
0: So, you mentioned that Arianna Huffington didn't have a um, linear career path. Would you both say you have or didn't have a linear career path, Kathleen?
2: Well, um, as a psychologist who was a uh kind of destined to go and work for, for an NGO and then uh, ended up venturing into marketing, then doing a PhD in applied economics in HR. Uh, I think uh, I have not had the linear career path and I have surprised many of my friends and, and my family as well in, in uh, the steps I took uh, in my career. And and even I would say, even though I've been in, in Vlerick now for a long time, uh, I would still say there's been many ups. There's also certainly been many downs. Um, and, and also every time when I feel now I'm entering a bit of a comfort zone, there's always something new popping up, uh, an online MBA, or then uh, we, we have a DBA program or this book. Uh, so, so I feel uh, even in, in this role that I have had now for quite a while, um, it's not been so linear, uh, which I really like, I must say.
0: For you, Marion, I can imagine that you, as a little girl, didn't have. The big dream of becoming the dean of a business school.
1: I didn't even know what a business school was, so or a dean, so absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, but I, I completely echo what what Kathleen was just talking about, and I think from the outside um, and at surface level, probably you think, well, you know, this is very smooth path, and she's she's been a professor for the last twenty years, so this is quite a linear, quite a linear, straightforward path. Uh, and I think that is one of the Myths that we also want to dispel is that even those people that from the outside seem to have a very smooth, straightforward career path, from the inside, it actually may, may look differently. Um, in my case, I think certainly the early years of my career were not exactly linear. I studied engineering and then I went into marketing, which was not, you know, the most expected uh, choice. And then actually I didn't go into business, but I went into academia, which again was not the most you know, expected uh, expected choice, um, and then I moved to the US, which obviously was a, a big jump as well, and then decided to move back, uh, w- which again was not the expected choice um, from uh, from my professional environment. So um, in that path, there were many you know many uh, many smaller steps um, that may not have been quite that linear as it may look like now, you know, with hindsight.
0: And do you think, Kathleen, that as a society we overfocus too much on a linear career path? Do we overfocus on reaching the top?
2: Well, I think we, we still very often have maybe this, this stereotypical image uh, that, that success, it is about reaching the top. And to a certain extent, I would say that's okay. Uh, um, but I think that we also need to embrace that that top might look very differently for everyone for uh, some people reaching the top might be uh, uh, being a stay at home dad or mom uh, and saying for me that's the top Uh, for other people that might be I want to be that CEO Uh, so so I think that we could broaden a little bit our uh, definition of what the top is uh, and and that career success and that's actually also kind of the the baseline of the book you define uh, what success is you define how you see your career and how you define also happiness in life and you define the path that you want to take you know yeah. it's it's your journey
1: to travel it's it's your path um to make and there's always the choice between the conventional path uh in every step that you take you know if 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 you study law you become a lawyer you, you know you join a sp- prestigious law firm, if you study economics, you become a trainee and climb the corporate ladder. You know, there's always that those sort of conventional paths. But what we also say is there's also always the, you know, maybe the more scenic route, uh, the, the unconventional choices. And what they may give you is a lot of learning, but also an unusual, atypical and unique profile. Um, and that has a lot of advantages Uh, as well. You know, certainly I know for me being able to bridge engineering with marketing and academia, it's not the most usual combination, but actually that gives you that unique profile. And again, one of the quotes in a book is from Coco Chanel. Um, You know, if you want to be irreplaceable, you know, you have to be different. Uh, And in that sense, there are advantages to choosing the unconventional path because it gives you an atypical profile of experiences and competencies and allows you to connect different domains as well
0: yeah do you think we perceive too much a person for instance you gave the example of somebody who studies law and he or she doesn't end up as being a lawyer that we say okay wow this is really thrown away money Mm -hmm.
1: i mean you could look at my my journey and say Oh, what a pity! You know, she spent five years studying engineering. You know, worked hard on that, and never did anything with it. And you know, at the surface, you could look at it like that, but it's certainly not how I experience it. Because yeah,
0: was that something that your your friends and family told you, Marion? You studied five years and you you, you didn't become an engineer. Why?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, what a waste of such a nice degree. <laughs> Absolutely, that, that that's some of the reactions that uh, that that I got. But I, I still, you know, those five years were absolutely not useless. And I think any sort of, you know, step that you take, you know, whether it's conventional or unconventional, there will always be learning lessons and, and uh, competencies that you acquire that will stay with you and that will remain useful. There's hardly anything that I have done that I now feel were not useful, even though at the time I was
2: doing that, I sometimes didn't see the value or, or the usefulness. And I think we also need to be realistic. Eh? Many of the things we, we learn in school, in universities, they also become outdated a few years later, eh? especially those technical skills. And in that sense, I think that's also the, the role of education, is to uh, learn, is to appreciate learning. Uh, and it's not only about the technical expertise you, you gain there, but it's a way of thinking you gain through education. And I, I think that's uh, uh, then no education is ever uh, thrown away, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that a message you want to give students at the Valeric Business School, that um, don't limit yourself by the boundaries of what society says you to do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also do not get swept up into what everybody else is doing. Uh, you know, it, it's quite okay to to make your own choices. And, you know, when everybody is applying to a firm so-and-so-and-so, you know, you don't necessarily need to do that as well. I mean, you, you, you can carve your own your own path.
2: Yeah, and many of the boundaries we, we have, they're not real boundaries. They're often mental limits we put on ourselves. And that's a real pity if you don't realize your potential based on some boundaries you've put in your uh, head.
0: Myth number four, the perfect job is out there. Do you think, Marion, we have too many job choices nowadays? Um, How do we know which one is the right career choice for you? Because I can imagine that 100 years ago, it was a straight forward path for yourself. Nowadays we have so many choices, which makes it really hard. I can imagine for a lot of youngsters.
1: Yeah, and I see a lot of angst around that, indeed, especially in early career choices. A lot of, you know, nervousness around, you know, do, do I make the right choices and those early career steps, you know, uh, you know, as if they are life life defining. Um, which in many cases they are they are not, um, um, and we also know that having indeed many many options can be quite paralyzing, um, uh, because you know you, you keep on pondering over it and 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 postponing actually making a choice. In that sense, uh, again, one of those aha moments for me upon reading was uh, reading a book by our, our colleague, Mark Bullens, where he talks about making choices in life and where he says one of the key things that you need to learn is make a choice and love your choice, you know, because you never, never know if you've made the right career choice in the end. There's always so many other things that you have done, you could have done, and, you know, Who knows whether you would have ended up more happy or more successful. You know, you can spend your whole life thinking about that. Um, And what I learned from him is this idea of whatever choice you make, you know, make the best of it and embrace embrace that choice. and, And that will probably be more fulfilling and help you more along than, you know, be paralyzed by what we call the paradox of choice.
0: And you, Kathleen, were some moments that you doubted, should I do a PhD or? Oh, many.
2: Uh, And I still have uh, doubts every morning when I wake up, every evening when I go to sleep. And I think the moments where maybe you don't have doubts anymore, that's the the moment where you might want to reflect a bit more.
0: Would you describe yourself as a perfectionist?
2: Um, I would not call myself one, but I'm pretty sure that many of the people around me would, would call me one. Um, so I guess it's, it's in the eye of the beholder uh, to a large extent. Um, I do put a, a very high bar on myself and I also think I, I put a high bar uh, for others um, because uh, that's a bit my, my mindset, I guess, is that I feel it's a sign of respect. If you uh, put the bar high, you also tell to that person, I believe you can reach it. And if I would uh, say I'm going to lower the bar, it also means I don't believe that you could actually uh, do this. Huh? Um, but but I would not call, in all honesty, myself a, a perfectionist uh, because... There are many balls that I drop every day. Uh, For example, if you would go to my house today, you would not find a very tidy uh, house. Um,
0: There's a disadvantage (laughs) of a podcast. We can't see it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, true. But I think it's also a matter of uh, reflecting in which areas do you want to be a perfectionist. And I do think that this is something I did have to learn. Uh, uh, Very early on in my career, I wanted to be perfect in basically everything i did and that puts a lot of pressure on your shoulders but also on the shoulders of the people around you and that is certainly something i learned to say well uh, these are the areas where i want to excel but there's definitely also some areas uh, where uh, i will never probably
0: excel yeah and you marion do you think your husband or your children or your colleagues would? Describe you as perfectionist.
1: I'm afraid so, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And how do you deal with that yourself?
1: And, it, and it's also something that, just as Kathleen, I had to learn to let go. Sometimes, probably getting children was a, quite a healthy thing for me in that because you know they enter into your life and um, one way or another create chaos. <laughs> <laughs> as much as you try to control that chaos um you know uh suddenly there's other you know human beings that depend on you and that are uh, in a lot of ways uh, unpredictable um and so you have to you have to let go you have also have to put into perspective you know your professional life um in in you know and in that sense you know uh, there's a lot of uh Balls that we keep in the air air and that we are juggling. and just as with any juggler, um, you know every once in a while a ball will drop um, and that's okay
0: yeah because is, is it is it wrong to be a perfectionist?
1: Well, I think there's there's obviously pros and cons as with any trade, if you take it to the extreme, it it certainly is no longer productive um, because it you know the the one percent that you need, uh, to really achieve 100, you know, perfection is is probably you know taking too much work, too much time, um, and is not worth it. So in that sense, you need to you need to calibrate, um, and and also I think you know that perfectionism can put so much mental pressure on a person that you you know sometimes you. It may make you not go into challenges because indeed you may not be able to finish them perfectly, um, and and so in that sense perfectionism can certainly um, be a negative trait as well. But it 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 can obviously also be a positive trait in that it means that you know you you raise the bar high for yourself. Um, you know you don't settle. Um, you know Kathleen always says, you know what is it if
2: you uh, aim high. What yeah you if again? if you aim higher yeah, you will will go high but if you aim low then of course you get so what you settle for yes you get what you settle for, yeah, you yeah. you settle
1: for. that was yeah. the quote that I was uh, that I was looking for so if you aim low by definition you will end up low uh and it it's you know it's by aiming high that you also end up higher probably not at perfection but a bit higher than uh, than you maybe thought was possible
0: in the book the concept of Job crafting is mentioned. Correct me if I'm wrong, Kathleen. It means that you can create a little bit your own job. Now, isn't that a little bit easier said than done?
2: Well, it depends on how you uh, look at job crafting, eh? because we know there's three components uh, to job crafting. And uh, there's the part where, indeed, uh, you mold your task. uh, And that could mean, for example, I decide where I work, when I work, etc. I agree uh, that this is not possible for everyone. Uh, If you're uh, working at the reception, uh, probably you cannot say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to work from home and my hours will be from 11 till 7. Uh, I can imagine that that's not possible. But there's actually two other elements uh, um, when it comes to job crafting. There's also what we call relational crafting, uh, meaning um, you're not um, stuck within uh, the team you're in. It's not because you're in a certain role that you're also stuck with the people that come with the role. Uh, um, So you can also decide a bit whom you work with, who you uh, relate to. Maybe to give one example, uh, when I started my PhD, I was the only one in the department doing a PhD. And uh, for a year, I was completely isolated and lonely. And then I started to read about this job crafting concept and uh, it talked about this relational crafting. And I said, well, actually, there are other PhD students in the world. Uh, they might not be in my uh, department. Uh, and, and for me, it was something I, I just didn't think about, uh, going and, and reaching out to, to those people, because for me, my world was my department. So, And, and that is also what relational crafting is about. Uh, you still can decide who you engage with. And then the, the, there's another element to job crafting, which I actually love a lot. It's the cognitive uh, crafting. Uh, And and for example, there's there's studies that show that people who have dirty jobs, uh, dirty work, that they engage a lot in this cognitive crafting. Uh, For example, uh, there's a a really nice study that follows up um, grave diggers. Uh, And uh, so you might say, well, how can you ever thrive in such a role? Uh, Because the rest of the world, they they look at this role as you put dead bodies in the ground, basically. But then uh, when they went to talk to these people doing these jobs, is they really crafted cognitively the identity that they had built around uh, that job. Uh, They were saying, uh, we we help people to uh, say goodbye uh, we do our jobs uh, in an, a, a nice and outdoor environment. Uh, so they gave a mm-hmm. completely different meaning to their role. Uh, it's also like the example of uh, of the cleaning lady, lady at NASA uh, who said, I helped to put a man on the moon. Uh, and I think that's something we can all do. Uh, we can redefine uh, our jobs and the meaning it, it has um, and the bigger impact it has.
0: Did you have to redefine your job due to the coronavirus?
1: Definitely. Um, Both indeed and maybe indeed the the meaning of it, as well as obviously in the way of working. Um, You know, when you're confronted as an organization with such a crisis, it also means that your identity as a leader, you know, changes. Um, with the school, we were on an ambitious growth path with lots of innovative new initiatives. Um, a, a lot of those initiatives, you know, and those ambitions that, you know, that you need to reduce um, because basically now 24-7 is taken up by a crisis management and dealing with what is being thrown at you. Um, uh, basically, and that that for me also required a bit of a shift in thinking. Of okay, so the next year is not going to be leading these ambitious, innovative initiatives. The next year, and maybe for you know for the foreseeable future, is going to be leading this organization through probably the biggest crisis that we have ever seen. Um, and so it is you know, it's certainly not it was not the view I had and the mental image that I had of what I was going to do. Um,
2: uh, but, you know, maybe it's even more meaningful.
0: yeah, And then you, Kathleen, did you have to change yeah, your think, job a little bit?
2: I think it's for everyone the case. I think a situation like this, it really requires from everyone to think, what will I bring to the table? What is the role that I can play? And, and it also took me a few weeks uh, to think about what is the role that I can play? Uh, because immediately my role was, uh, in, the, uh, in the beginning of the year, my role was basically teaching a lot. Uh, and, and then suddenly you, you don't have that much teaching or uh, you re, re go to online teaching. Um, so but, but then you start thinking, well, in, in a situation like that, It's also easy to go in a pit of despair and to uh, become maybe negative. And I think what all of us can bring to the table in a situation like that is is being optimistic. uh, And we have a duty to be optimistic and to carry our individual responsibility. Uh, because it's not, uh, Marion is a dean, I'm a professor, but uh, it won't have any impact whether we uh, wash our hands. Uh, it doesn't have any more impact than uh, when anybody else washes his or her hands. Uh, so it, it does create the sense of responsibility, I think, or at least I hope uh, that this is what a situation like this uh, brings to people.
0: Thanks for listening to the first part of this threefold book podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and already obtained some inspiration. If you can't wait for the next two episodes, order the book at your favorite bookstore. The revenue of the book sale will go to the Vlaric Scholarship Fund. If you have questions or suggestions, mail us via podcast at vlaric.com. Bye for now and stay tuned for some more episodes in the near future.